Now we're here. How do we get out? Now we're here. How do we get out? Presented by actor and animal activist Peter Regan and filmmaker Andrew Telling. So, hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm very well. Yeah, interesting, actually. Interesting feedback we've had to the conversation we had in our last podcast mm-hmm. regarding Philip Limbury. Yeah. I found him really fascinating to listen to. Yeah, me too. Such an intelligent man. And my hope is that people will share it because actually what he said... I would really, really be interested for everyone to hear yeah. and, and give us some sort of direct Absolutely. feedback on what, that. What I really love about listening to Philip is that he is so totally on top mm, of his subject. Totally. And when you have someone like that, he can be simple and clear and transparent. He has the most non-aggressive um, delivery. So it's very easy mm. to listen to him. He's very open. He's very warm. He's very understanding. And I, I was absolutely amazed at the amount of information he got into our last podcast. Um, so much so that there is so much information that he has to share with us that I'm really looking forward to our next podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which, as we know, is going to be a continuation of the brilliant Philip Limbury. We haven't touched on another area, which is actually an area which is um, has a huge amount of pretense about it in, in terms of how good it is for us, and that's the dairy industry. Mm. Um, and I think people have very little knowledge of the lifespan and the dreadful experience of the dairy cow. So can you give us a kind of um, starting point with that? Yeah, well, dairy cows are actually the hardest working of all farmed animals. And why are they hard working? It's because they are pushed beyond their physiological limits, their body's natural limits, to produce ever more milk. Uh, The modern dairy cow produces 10 times more milk than the cow would naturally drink, the calf. The calf would naturally drink 10 times. And what kind of strain does that put on? Well, the average dairy cow in peak lactation, when she's producing the most milk, the metabolic strain on her body is the equivalent of you or I being forced to run a marathon every single day. Wow. Terrifying. Gosh. So these are dairy cows, and uh, of course, the typical imagery is for dairy cows to be out in fields, of course, yeah. grazing grass in this idyllic scene. Uh, even here in the UK, that's becoming rarer. More and more dairy cows are being taken out of fields uh, and put permanently indoors in uh, in in. Uh, what I would call mega dairies, yeah. uh, big indoor factories. Now, we did have a big victory, actually. Uh, ten years ago, it seems like just yesterday, there was a proposal to put 8,500 dairy cows into a single US-style mega farm uh, up in Nocton in Lincolnshire. And we opposed that, and we got the local people together, environmentalists, all sorts of people, and we actually got it stopped. But nevertheless... Slowly but surely, more by stealth, uh, dairy cows are being taken out of fields and put indoors. Within the horror of the five years of this poor cow's life, um, it will um, give birth three times possibly and their calf is taken away immediately. So the mother is in mourning 
from the moment she is given Gosh. birth, she goes into a state of mourning. Yeah, for, for, for the vast majority of dairy milk, the reality is that uh, the industry breaks that, that strongest, most fundamental bond of the mammalian kingdom, mm-hmm. the bond between mother mm-hmm. and offspring, yeah. baby. Uh, and the calf is taken away you know, in the, within the first 24 hours, and the calf then goes off to one of two fates, um, either uh, is, is killed, um, as uh, you know, a male calf would be, would be killed, or, or reared, um, either to go back into the herd, if, if lucky enough to be born female, or if male, if it hasn't been killed at birth, uh, for, you know, for being born male, then uh, it'll be sent off for, for veal or for beef. Yes. Um, one of the things that Compassionate Well Farming has been long highlighting, long campaigning against, very successfully actually, is against the uh, export of calves yes. to veal. Mm. Philip, what does the inside of an intensive dairy farm building look like? It looks like a big shed where the animals don't uh, see a blade of grass, certainly in, in this country. And uh, often when they go to, to be milked, they go on a carousel. That's the classic image. You get these cows mm. that go into these cubicles. They're all lined up on this rotating carousel like cogs in a machine. But what's really interesting... It's not always like that in the States. I went to California, for example, when I was writing Farmageddon. I took Isabel Oakshot there. Now, Isabel uh, is a fantastic writer. Yeah. Uh, she was, at the time, the political editor of the Sunday Times. Mm. And, and she had no background in this issue at all. And she just had a child. So what I really valued with Isabel was not only a fantastic writer... But also, she had the eyes of a new mother. She was looking at everything through what is going to be good to feed my child. So I took her to California. We didn't go to Hollywood, much to disappointment. (laughs) We went to Central Valley. Mm. And Central Valley is the... It's the beating heart of, of the agricultural um, economy in California, which itself is a big agricultural area. And when we got there, what we found was that it was a vast landscape of industrial agriculture, of animals and crops. And we stood amongst these almond groves and they went on for what seemed like miles and miles in these rows. And this was Isabel's first lesson. We stood amongst these almond groves and I said, Isabel, listen, just listen. Do you know what we heard? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Not the chirp of a bird or the buzz of a bee. After a while, we heard this low thud from a helicopter in the distance that was pesticide spraying nature into submission using, using um, harsh chemicals. And this was part of a daily assault on the landscape in this industrial crop and animal landscape from aircraft, from landcraft, from people in protective suits. And I took her up in a little plane and I said, let's go and take an aerial view. And we flew over this and it looked like a vast patchwork quilt of massive eye-popping proportions. And every now and again, we came across what looked like a terrible sore, a scar on the landscape. Yeah. And what that was, was a mega dairy. 
Each one of those had 12,000 cows standing in a dusty paddock, not a blade of grass in sight. And I said to I said to her, I said to Isabel, Isabel, this is what some people see as a vision of the future of agriculture. This is what they call sustainable intensification. And she just turned to me and said, this doesn't look like a vision of the future. This looks like Farmageddon. Is that how you got the title? Yeah, That's how the title she's came a, out. She's a co-writer, isn't she? She was my yes. co-writer yeah, of Farmageddon. So what is becoming really clear to me um, from talking to you and your immense wealth of knowledge Thank you. is that all of these things are related to not health imperatives, to not what is good for our bodies, but what is good for business. Absolutely. It's business-driven. Now, I mean, let's go back to the cow, Peter, and this is a, a, a perfect example. One of the things which factory farmers say is that they're, that they're producing food efficiently. Well, they're not, and uh, because... The most efficient way of keeping a cow is to have a cow on a grassy hillside where he or she is converting grass um, into stuff we can't eat on a marginal piece of land, a hillside where you can't grow any crops, converting milk, uh, uh, grass um, into uh, milk or meat. So taking something we can't eat and producing something that we can. That's the efficient thing. Now, what happened with business from uh, the middle of the last century is that business came in, um, fact, animals disappeared into factory farms, and uh, and the business of uh, of uh, feed merchants became big. So don't bother feeding your cow on grass. Feed them this grain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry came in. You know, put them in these sheds. It doesn't matter if they get ill because we'll sell, sell you antibiotics yeah. and other veterinary uh, drugs. Don't worry about uh, the fact that they're eating grain because we can produce more using these pesticides and fertilizers. So again, the big chemical companies with their fertilizers and pesticides. So who has benefited from factory farming? Is it the farmers themselves? No, because they've been going out of business as if farming's been been uh, going out of fashion. Who has benefited are these big companies, the grain merchants, the pesticide companies, the fertilizer companies, the drug companies, mm-hmm. and the equipment manufacturers. Of course. At what point, though, do you think humans started to feel that they could live with industrial suffering? This is where we have this false concept of dominion. This comes from creationism, and you know, it is our right uh, to do with animals what we wish. Because as some uh, philosophers or ecclesiastics would say, they have no soul. Well, certainly that is, uh, that, that is a historical driver. Um, I would probably answer, as the son of a, of a, of a, a vicar, I would probably um, a, a agree with, with uh, you know, the, the, the Christian um, confusion over over dominion that actually dominion is about us having um, responsibility rather than unbridled uh, merciless power you know that is uh, that there is nothing christian about unbridled merciless power mm-hmm. there is right. everything christian about responsibility and compassion so we've lost that driver 
to be responsibly compassionate because it's so part of our societal norm. Well, I mean, the whole issue of animal sentience, the fact that animals can feel pain and suffer and if we allow them a sense of joy, this is quite a modern concept. It was only recognised in law, in European law, in 1997. Wow. It, It was such a modern concept that it was actually something which... Uh, was originally pushed by Compassion and Well Farming's founder, Peter Roberts, who was a former dairy farmer in the 60s. He moved away from farming because uh, he he was deeply uh, concerned by the way that animals were treated. Scroll forward into the 80s and he he started to press for animals to be recognised as sentient beings, really as a mechanism to end live exports, because in the live export trade, you've got animals bundled into Mm. trucks uh, and they are treated um, no better than cabbages. Actually, uh, cabbages would be treated better than the animals. And and there is a part of that is is a reason, is, is, is in law, animals are classed as agricultural goods, agricultural products there's no no distinction between live animals and 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 uh, and plants at least that was the case so he cracked onto this idea that we needed to change the founding treaty of the European Union mm. change the treaty of Rome and this in the 90s when I joined at compassion was a big theme uh, people fanned out in the world before before uh, the internet and got more than a million signatures on paper. Wow. And I remember being in the the van, taking these signatures to Strasbourg to hand them in. And I remember as we were doing this campaign, you know, in the run-up, it was seen as such a a new concept and a big ambition to get the Treaty of Rome changed that when I mentioned it, for example, to colleagues in Spain, they just laughed. They thought this was just too big an ambition to achieve. In 1997, we got the European Union to agree to legally recognise animals as sentient beings. Fantastic. So the intensive rearing of so many animals now is just because somebody or an organisation making a huge sum of money is just flagrantly disregarding the fact that there is sentience. It's just a non-acknowledgement. Factory farming grew up under the radar... It grew up in, in, uh, from 1947 uh, uh, Agriculture Act into the 50s. It wasn't until the early 60s when factory farming was first exposed by Ruth Harrison with her fantastic yeah. book, Animal Machines. You know, it, it was embedded 15, 20 years before it was ever exposed. Mm. And so the trap was sprung by then. You know, lots of farmers had taken up this new... Way of keeping animals. Every agricultural college in the country was uh, was teaching it to their students, who were becoming brainwashed into thinking this was the new way. Governments were pumping subsidies into this new way, and so when it burst out onto the public agenda through animal machines, we were left trying to fight this new paradigm of efficiency. Mm this new paradigm that this is the modern way. And we've never been able to overcome that until now, until, we, you know, until now when we recognise that actually factory farming is not only cruel, but it's also a major destruction of the natural environment, yeah. is, drive, is, a, is a big driver of part of, the, of, of climate change, and, so, and, and is a big breeding ground of 
the next pandemic. Yeah. And so our, our chickens really, as a society, are coming home to roost. Indeed. So whereas we weren't decisive in the 60s, we didn't say, gosh, we've made a mistake, we need to change. We didn't do that in the 60s. Here in the 21st century, we have got 10 to 20 years to change things. And mm. I'm, going to, I, I'm going to make a big statement here. If we do not, if we do not in the next 10, 20, 30 years start seriously to move away from factory farming, then it could undermine, if not end, our way of life. That is a big statement. Can you elaborate on that a bit? What I'm talking about, Peter, is that scientists tell us we've got 10 years uh, to stop climate change, yeah. to solve it. Uh, on top of that, uh, and we know that uh, your factory farming is uh, you know, a big reason uh, for, for uh, greenhouse gases from, from, uh, uh, from food. Mm -hmm. mm. On top of that, we see that pollinators, so bees that are required for the very existence of a third of all our food worldwide, they're in steep decline. Mm -hmm driven by industrial agriculture. On top of that, we know that the World Health Organization is warning us that we're entering a post-antibiotic era where currently treatable diseases uh, will once again kill if we don't move away from squandering them uh, you, in, in factory farms. Then you, we think to ourselves, well, let's look to the seas for, for uh, our food in the future. Um, scientists tell us that our seas could be commercially fished out by 2048. Wow. And on top of that, industrial agriculture is a big driver for the decline of our soils. The United Nations warns that if we don't do something, if we carry on as we are, our soils that are, that, that are an absolute fundamental for growing more than 90% of our food worldwide, they could be gone Wow. And that means the end of the food system as we know it. It's that serious. What underpins all this is industrial agriculture. The solution is moving away from factory farming of animals and crops and moving to a much more compassionate, regenerative food system mm -hmm. with far, far fewer animals, with far less meat and dairy, and with a system where... Any animals that we do have in that system, they're treated with compassion and respect as part of mixed rotational farming systems that preserve the soils, that bring the bees back, that don't need antibiotics, that bring wildlife back, that essentially build back our nature. Both Andrew and I are wrapped by what you just said. Are governments listening? Governments are starting to, to listen. The penny is starting to drop. The European Union has described uh, uh, as, uh, industrial agriculture as one of the, the, the big risk factors for future pandemics that needs to be addressed at intergovernmental level through the United Nations over the next 18 months. We know that climate change, there is a Paris agreement to stop runaway climate change. Um, we, we know that the United Nations has, has convened a food summit next year uh, and the, the goal is to come up with a voluntary agreement to tran transition away from our current food system. We're going to take this as a big opportunity because what mm. Compassion in World Farming believes is we need a global agreement similar to the Paris-style agreement for climate change. We need that for food. 
We need a global agreement to move away from factory farming to a new regenerative style of farming with much less meat and dairy, with, with keeping the animals that we do have in mixed rotational systems on the land compassionately. Philip, how much power do people have, individuals? How much can they dictate the course of this? We have uh, a fantastic um, ability to take action three times a day through uh, the, the food we put on our plates, to, to eat more plants, to eat less and, and better meat and dairy. And by that, I mean ensuring that your meat and dairy, if you have it, comes from pasture-fed, organic or free-range. What we can do is get involved. Join Compassion in World Farming's campaigns. We'll give you information, mm. tools, we'll give you, you know, where to sign our petition to call on governments to end factory farming. We'll give you plenty of opportunities to press governments to end cages by ending this scourge called factory farming before it ends us. This is a very, um, perhaps, unanswerable question. Do you know how much of the land has been destroyed by intensive animal agriculture to date and how long it would it take to regenerate? Well, I can answer it a slightly different way that, that half the habitable land surface of the planet is taken up growing our food and industrial agriculture is sweeping across that half of the habitable land surface of the planet. Um, if, if you take it that we, we've got 60 harvests left in the world's soils, you can see that the degradation is frightening. You know, a third of, of, of the planet's arable land is, is degraded, seriously degraded um, already, according to some estimates. How do, we, how do we get that back? Well, the problem that we've got is that soil is, uh, uh, is a, uh, a non-renewable resource, certainly in a lifetime. But if we're going to stop the destruction, then what we've got to do essentially is to restore an age-old contract with the land. You see, Peter, Andrew, what happened 10,000 years ago is that, you know, a bit like Brexit, but on a global scale, we as a species took a decision. We decided that we were going to move away from being nomads, from hunter-gatherers. We were going to be settlers. And it happened... Um, somewhere in Mesopotamia, between uh, uh, near the River Tigris, uh, and uh, now Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that instance, we signed a contract with the soil to look after that soil, because that soil is what we need for our fruit and veg. Where else does it come from? 70 years ago with factory farming we started to tear up that contract remove the animals off the land uh, grow the crops using chemical pesticides and fertilizers all of which destroys the soil mm. what we need to do now is restore the animals to the land far fewer of them get them out of factory farms get them out of factory farms uh, and keep them in a regenerative food system mm. uh, which helps to put back the soil regenerative why is that word used because it's about regenerating uh, keeping animals on the land uh, in, in ways where their manure fertilizes the soil yeah. brings it yeah. back 
taking away the pesticides which destroy the animals. It's interesting because we, we think about the elephants that are above the land. We don't very often think about the elephant that is below the soil, that is below the land in the soil, because uh, there is a, an elephant's worth of biodiversity in every acre of fertile soil. Wow. And this would be worms and bugs and bacteria, everything that is needed for the decent uh, you know, growth of plants. What we've been doing through industrial agriculture is throwing chemical fertilizers, pesticides at it, destroying that elephant under the soil. Bring back that elephant by bringing the animals back to the land. Far fewer of them. If you have too many animals on the land, you know, you just run it as the world as a big feedlot, then you'll kill the elephant under the soil just as quickly. Yeah, yeah. Get everything back in balance. What we need is nature-friendly farming, uh, animal welfare-friendly farming, people-friendly farming. And what that will do is it will bring the soil back, it will bring the pollinators back, bring the wildlife back, bring the nutrition back in our food and give the farmed animals a decent life. Yeah. Philip, I, I find the environmental issue with regards to climate change, the amount of land being used, I find it almost the final insult really, is that we have this huge list of animal atrocities and welfare issues which are occurring on, on, on a level. And then beyond that, we're all going to be affected by choices from such a few people desperate to squeeze as much as they can out of a biological sentience which shouldn't be there in the first place. When you say that, Andrew, do you, are you talking about the corporations when you say a few people? I think so, yeah. I, I think I am talking about the corporations, but I also think, listening to what you were saying, Philip, that there is... It's driven. We've, we've been duped yeah, absolutely. in many respects. Yeah. We have been conned into a position. Now, I'm not saying that takes away personal responsibility sure, absolutely, at all, yeah. but I feel we've been conned into a position by not being given the facts. Totally. And I feel angry because of that. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I think the, the, the reality is that it suits um, some big c companies for us to continue as we are, eating far too much meat and dairy for our own health, far too much meat and dairy for the planet uh, sustainability. Uh, and because this is their business model, essentially, this is what is making them money. And they're very powerful lobbyists at government. So we've got a situation where we're locked into a trajectory course, a collision course with, with the boundaries of the planet, um, you know, essentially... If we want our society to continue, what I believe very strongly is we need to go another way. Um, mm. the, the pandemic is often seen as, uh, as a warning. COVID-19, I don't think it's a warning. I think it's a demonstration of the kind of shocks that we will see increasingly frequently and increasingly uh, hard over the coming years mm. and 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 that is going to hurt us terribly i mean look the, the truth is that our food alone our f if we continue eating meat and dairy along the predicted trend line continue eating more and more meat then our food alone will trigger catastrophic climate change mm -hmm. it will do that before the middle of the century yeah. at the same time we can see that our life support system nature is disappearing. In 2017, Compassionate World Farming held an international conference with, the, with WWF. And at that conference, we were talking about the fact that 50% 
of all of our wildlife has disappeared in the last half century, essentially since the widespread adoption of factory farming. That was three years ago. Now, the news in the last week or so is that we've lost more than two-thirds. So we've gone from 50% to 68% wildlife losses worldwide on average in a tiny space of time. That, Peter, that, Andrew, is our life support system disappearing. Yeah. Add those two things together, climate change and our life support system disappearing. Then add shocks from future pandemics, remembering that factory farming is the perfect breeding ground for the next pandemic. It's a pressure cooker for new and deadly viruses. What we are on is a collision course with our own destiny as a society. COVID-19 has shown us that we are, as a society that used to be struck by our own hubris, we are infinitely fragile mm-hmm. and As Sir David Attenborough has quite rightly pointed out, if we don't do something fast, then we could be looking at the destruction of our society. It is that profound. Mm -hmm. So do we care enough about our children? Do we care enough about animals? Do we care enough about our society to change? Or are we locked into our own destruction through eating too much cheap meat from factory farmed animals. That says it all, basically. It really does. I, I, really does. I think that what I'd like to do, first of all, Andrew, if it's okay with you, of course. I'd like to thank you hugely for your time with us over these, what will be two podcasts. What we haven't dealt with um, is what happens in the sea. <laughs> We've dealt with the land very comprehensively and. Uh, I think we'd both like to invite you back to a third very podcast. Much so. yeah. Very much so. So that we can actually deal with what's happening under the water as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And I'd just like to thank you for saying everything in such a clear manner. Because so often these issues can be confused with data that sometimes pushes people away, information that pushes people away. But what you've presented is extremely unambiguous, clear facts. And that has been so powerful. Absolutely. Been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you both very much. much. Thank you. Well, that's it then, Andrew. Um, we've learned an awful lot this afternoon. <laughs> so let's let's open it up. If anybody would like to get in touch with us, either by email or via our social media feeds, the details are at the end of this podcast. Great. Please do get in touch. Drop us a line. Ask us a question, and anything else that comes up, we can deal with perhaps in future episodes. Fantastic. Thank you for listening. Good, good. And it's great talking to you again, Andrew. Likewise. We always want to hear from you. So whether you have a question, an observation or a suggestion, please get in touch with Peter and Andrew by emailing life at orangeplanetpictures.com or search for Orange Planet Pictures on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.